All right, well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27? If you're new with us, we are working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning, and find ourselves in Matthew 27, at this point, the morning of the crucifixion. Now, uh, let's back up to verse 15, get a running start at this morning's study. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Well, the question that many have wrestled with over the centuries is why if Pilate knew Jesus was an innocent man, why did he not let him go? I mean, you have to understand the Roman system. Rome was a, an empire that prized itself on law and order and on a sense of justice. They did want justice for their citizens. And up until this point, those who have studied the trial uh, and know the Roman order of a trial have said that up until this point, Pilate followed the stages of a Roman trial impeccably. The first stage, of course, was the charge, followed by the evidence, followed by the defense, and then finally, the verdict. Well, Pilate heard the charge, investigated the evidence, asked Jesus to defend himself, which he did not. He was silent, as we have already seen and Pilate knew the reason behind the accusation was because the Jewish leaders envied Jesus, verse 18 tells us. And so at this point in the trial, Pilate renders his verdict. He said, I find this man innocent of the charges against him. In fact, John tells us, tells us in his gospel that Pilate declared his verdict of Jesus' innocence three times. Three times. So why didn't he let him go? Why did he cave to pressure? Why did he let the Jewish leaders and the people persuade him to crucify an innocent man? Well, you see, Pilate had backed himself into a corner with regard to the Jewish population living in and around Jerusalem at that time, and, of course, with the emperor himself. You see, at this time, Pilate had been governor of the region for about five or six years, and he hadn't always used the best judgment in dealing with the Jewish people. First of all, he had deliberately offended the Jews by having his soldiers carry these ensigns, these flags, uh, into Jerusalem that carried the likeness of Caesar on them. Now, you have to understand something. To the Jews, anything that contained an image of anybody was idolatrous. And so they protested vigorously 
uh, against this. Now, the previous governors had handled the people with finesse. They understood how the Jews felt about this, and so they didn't bring the incense uh, around the Jewish people, especially not into the holy city of Jerusalem. But Pilate was not a finesse kind of a leader. He was an in-your-face, bull-in-a-china-shop kind of leader. He was going to show them who's boss. So he brings the flags in with this image of Caesar on them right into the holy city. The Jews went berserk. And they sent delegation after delegation of leaders demanding that Pilate remove the flags, the incense. Well, he became so infuriated that he rounded a group of these leaders into an amphitheater and threatened to have his soldiers cut their heads off if they didn't knock it off. But instead of being frightened, they defiantly exposed their necks, dropped to their knees, and dared Pilate to make good on his threat. Well, he knew they had him, all right? They had him. He had been sent to the region by the emperor to keep peace, not to massacre a bunch of innocent people and therefore cause a riot, which it definitely would have caused. So he relented and gave in to their demand. Not long after that, Pilate decided to build an aqueduct that would bring water from 50 miles away into the city of Jerusalem. That was a good thing. They needed the water. It was a good civic project. The only problem was he didn't have the money to finance the project. So once again, exercising bad judgment, he forcibly took money from the temple treasury. Now, you know, in the Jewish mind, any money given to Yahweh, the God of Israel, was to be used, of course, for the worship of God and him only. And so when Pilate forcibly took money from the temple treasury, the people rioted, as you can well imagine. So to counter this uprising, Pilate sent his soldiers into the crowd dressed like civilians, but secretly carrying clubs and swords with them. And as they mingled through the crowd, when the signal was given, they pulled out these weapons and they brutally massacred a whole bunch of these protesters, unarmed protesters. That was strike number two. His third offense against the Jewish people almost got him executed by the emperor. And that was he had special shields made for his soldiers that were stationed at the fortress of Antonia, which was right there on the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. And no doubt in a rather transparent attempt to flatter the emperor, who at this time was Tiberius Caesar, Pilate ordered the likeness of Tiberius engraved on the shield. Now, this guy didn't learn too quick, okay? I mean, he should have already known that the Jews saw any image as a form of idolatry. This time, though, they bypassed Pilate altogether and went straight to Caesar himself to uh, file a formal complaint. We have to understand something. Caesar didn't care about empty flattery from Pilate. All he wanted was for Pilate to keep the peace in the region and not to do anything that would foment revolution, which, of course, he was doing. So Tiberius demanded the shields be removed immediately and warned Pilate that any further cause for uprising among the Jewish population would cost him his head. That, folks, is the background of the trial of Jesus standing before Pilate. You see that Pilate found himself or was caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place. He knew Jesus was innocent. Verse 18 tells us that he knew the Jewish leaders had delivered him up, Jesus up to Pilate because of envy. Pilate was no fool. He knew Jesus was innocent. He wanted to let him go. Several times he tried his best to let him go, but the people kept demanding because the Jewish leaders had convinced them to turn against Jesus and demand that he be crucified. So every time Pilate wanted to let him go, the people wouldn't hear of it, and they kept demanding he be crucified. 
Only John records the thing that really pushed him into this deal where he had no choice. At least he always had a choice. Don't get me wrong, okay? But in Pilate's mind, the thing that they said to him that really pushed him into a position where he felt he had no choice, where John records at one point in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 12, the Jews cried out at one point saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. You see, that was one of the charges that they brought against Jesus, that he claimed to be a king. Pilate had earlier questioned him about this. Took him into the praetorium and said, look, they say you're a king. Is that true? He says, well, it is true. For this cause I, I came into the world. He said, my kingdom, Jesus said, is really not of this world. I don't have a standing army. My, my servants don't fight. My kingdom is a kingdom of truth. And Pilate said, what is truth? Walked out to the, to the Jewish leaders uh, thinking that Jesus might have been a bit of a nut, but he's not a dangerous revolutionary. But that was the charge that he was making himself a king. Well, he was a king. He was the Messiah, king of the Jews. And so they said at one point, look, if you don't crucify this guy, we're going to go straight to Caesar, tell him that you didn't deal with a guy who claimed to be a king. We have no king but Caesar. And so that, when Pilate heard that, he, th he knew they had him. He knew they had him. In his mind, he had no other choice but to put Jesus to death. To do the right thing, to let an innocent man go free, would have caused a riot, and Pilate simply could not have afforded another riot. Not if he wanted to save his neck. And so we read in verse 24, When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. The problem was that Pilate couldn't wash away the guilt and sin of crucifying an innocent man by simply washing his hands in a basin of water. How ironic for Pilate that the only thing that could have washed away his sin was the very blood he ordered spilled. Even as we sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, and of course, the Gospels now come to an end with any talk of Pilate. The Bible says nothing more about him. You might be sitting there thinking to yourself, whatever happened to this guy? Whatever happened to Pilate? Well, I searched through my Bible program for resources. I went online, and the conclusion was that we're not completely sure. The best evidence that we have, when I say we, I mean the scholars, the, the historians, um, some sources say that a few years after this, three or four years after this event, that uh, Pilate fell out of favor with then Emperor Caliglia and was exiled to Gaul, modern France, where he and his wife eventually committed suicide. Many in the early church attribute Pilate's misfortune. And if you study Pilate's life in history, it seems like his, his life took a definite downturn after this. And so many early Christians believe that it was a judgment of God upon his life for having condemned Jesus, an innocent man, to be crucified. Out of his own mouth. Didn't Jesus say, by your words you'll be justified, by your words you should be condemned? Pilate said, this guy's innocent. Uh, I washed my hands of this. Well, unfortunately, you can't wash your hands of sin in water. You've got to wash yourself in the blood of Christ, which he didn't do uh, in a figurative sense. But we, we don't know. The early church believed that Pilate, all his misfortune began when he condemned Jesus to die. I don't know if that's true. One thing we do know for sure is that Pilate had a chance to do the right thing, 
and let Jesus go. Instead, he chose to save his own life. And it's reminiscent of what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verses 25 and 6, when he said, If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. For what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? And I'm sure if we could ask Pilate that question today, he would say, boy, did I make a big mistake and I'm going to be paying for it for a long time. But getting back to our text, verse 31, so Pilate condemns Jesus to be crucified. The soldiers lead him away, verse 31. When they had mocked him, they took, a, took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now, as they came out, that would be out of the city, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. Simon was probably a Hellenistic Jew from Cyrene, which is in northern Africa. And the Hellenistic Jews were the ones who were Jews that were raised outside of Israel. They were the ones that were most impacted by Grecian culture, the Hellenistic culture. And North Africa had a lot of Jews living there. And Simon appears to have been one of them. You say, well, what was he doing so far away from home? He's in Jerusalem. Why? Well, he was no doubt there for the Passover. And you have to understand, he had probably scraped and saved for years, maybe a couple of decades, to scrape together enough money to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You see, it was the desire of every Jewish adult, if they lived outside of Israel, to somehow, to somehow save enough money to make at least one pilgrimage to Jerusalem in their lifetime, and at Passover time would be supreme because every Jew would love to spend at least one Passover in the holy city. And so he'd probably scraped his money together. He takes the journey, finds himself in Jerusalem, or at least he's on his way to the city, and he's you know, just taking in the sights and, and, and probably on his way into the city to go to the temple to see the temple and so on, when all of a sudden he hears this commotion. He looks and sees a crowd coming toward him. He sees a soldier carrying a placard. Behind him, a prisoner. On either side of the prisoner, two other soldiers. And then he sees in the back of the prisoner, he sees another Roman soldier. He sees this commotion, this, this whole procession coming. The soldier in front carrying a placard that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. You have to understand something. Whenever a person was condemned to be crucified, the soldiers would always take them on a little procession through the city. And they would take a circuitous route. Okay, They wanted to, to pass through as many parts of the cities they could, because the idea was Rome wanted to strike fear into the hearts of anyone who would think of defying Roman law. The idea was, you saw the, the, the soldiers coming, the accusation against the prisoner, you saw the prisoner himself in chains, of course, at this point Jesus had been beaten up pretty severely, and so the prisoner would be walking through the streets of Jerusalem, people would see carrying the cross, knowing that he was going to a place to be crucified, and would strike fear in their hearts to not ever turn against the Roman government, to do anything unlawful against Rome, because here are the consequences. And so here they were, making their way through the streets of Jerusalem. No doubt, at this point, Jesus was already beginning to weaken physically. Don't forget, he had lost a lot of blood after having been scourged. He had lost a lot of blood at the scourging post. A few hours before that, he had been beaten pretty badly by the guards that were the priest guards. 
in the house of Caiaphas when he was first arraigned there and put through a mock trial. Then he was turned over to Pilate, and Pilate's soldiers brutalized Jesus pretty badly. They beat him up pretty good. And then they gave him a 200-pound cross to carry up a hill. And so by this time, physically, you know, as Simon's watching this spectacle, who knows if he had ever seen a crucifixion? And he's seeing this prisoner beaten to a pulp, you know, just ripped open his body. He sees him stumbling under the weight of this cross. Finally, maybe he collapses altogether. And he's watching all this, taking it in. And all of a sudden, he feels the flat part of a soldier's sword on his shoulder. Now, every Roman citizen knew what that meant. Whenever a Roman soldier laid the flat part of his sword upon your shoulder, it was his way of saying that he was compelling you, pressing you into service to either carry his gear a mile, which was law, or, in this case, to carry the cross of a condemned criminal. I mean, that was Roman law. You couldn't argue with it. You couldn't refuse to do it. And it was based on that very law that Jesus said, look, if they compel you to go one mile, go what? Two. Go two. Go the first mile out of compulsion. Go the second mile out of compassion. Because by going the second mile, the soldier will go, why are you going two miles? Law says you only have to go one mile. Yes, I'm doing the first mile because of law. I'm doing the second mile because of love. I want you to know my Savior who told me if ever I was pressed into service to carry a Roman soldier's equipment, I'm to carry it the first mile, yes, but then the second mile for a witness. Let me tell you about my Savior. And so this Simon of Cyrene was compelled to carry the cross of Jesus. Now, I've tried to put myself in Simon's sandals, okay? Here you are in Jerusalem, okay? I mean, you've saved for maybe 20 years to get to Jerusalem. You're basically on vacation, okay? You're all excited. I don't know where he stayed the holiday in the night before, whatever, but here he's on his way towards Jerusalem now, right? He sees the city up in front of him, okay? Maybe he's only a few hundred feet from the gates itself. His plan was to go into the city, take in the sights, look at everything in the holy city that he's always heard about but has never had a chance to see. No, there's no computers back then. You can't go online and look up what the city looked like. It's all, it's all stories that were related, right? He wants to go to the temple. He wants to look and see this, one of the marvels of the ancient world, right? He's on his way into the city, and all of a sudden, here comes this procession out from the city. And here he sees his prisoner, and all of a sudden, one of the soldiers says, look, you need to carry his cross. I mean, for Simon, that had to be an incredible imposition. Incredible imposition. I'm sure he hated the Roman soldier who pressed him into service. I'm sure he hated the prisoner, Jesus, whose cross he had to carry. And if it was me, I would have been saying to myself, you know what, man? As soon as I get to this place, wherever this guy's getting crucified, I'm throwing his cross down, and I'm getting back to what I want to do today. That was the plan, I'm sure, in Simon's mind. Didn't quite work out that way. I think something about Jesus compelled him to stick around. Something about Jesus caused Simon to want to stay with him. Jesus had this incredibly attractive personality. What do I mean? He attracted people. Little children loved to be around Jesus. They were always running to him. The disciples, they got a little aggravated at times. Get these kids out of here, okay? He's, got busy, he's a busy man. No, 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 don't, don't chase the kids away. Let them come to me. The kingdom of heaven is for little ones like this. Prostitutes, I mean, uh, tax collectors, the worst of society, people that others had written off, flocked to Jesus. He had that personality. I'm sure it was the love, 
I'm sure it was something in his eyes even. It's just when he looked at you, there was compassion. There was love. There was acceptance. People were drawn to him. And I think as Simon carried Jesus' cross, something about Jesus just mesmerized him. Isn't it interesting that Simon had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and ended up meeting the Passover lamb? You know, guys, when I read my Bible, I read these historical accounts, and they are historical, but they're written for our learning in so many other ways. I see the Holy Spirit lifting up these real stories and applying them in our lives in spiritual ways. And I see in many ways the Holy Spirit holding up Simon as an illustration of how a person's life can suddenly intersect with Jesus in a moment where they're not expecting. And at that point, the Holy Spirit will seek to compel them to follow Jesus. Simon... He had no choice. We do. We do. But just as Simon met Jesus on the road to Calvary, think about it. That's where every one of us meets Jesus. Because unless you take up your cross and follow him, you can't be one of his disciples. So when you think about it, I don't know where you first encountered Jesus. I don't know where it was that you first surrendered your life to Jesus, but it was on Calvary Road whether you know it or not. might have been in school. might have been at the grocery store. might have been in the backyard talking to a neighbor across the fence. But you didn't realize it at that time, but it was really Calvary Road, the place where your life intersected with Jesus. You know, Mark tells us that Simon was, and I'm quoting from Mark's gospel, coming out of the country and passing by. He didn't really intend to stop. He might have stopped for a little while, but he was intending to pass by to go about his business. Again, I think he was on his way into the city uh, to do a little sightseeing. It's interesting to me how Simon was just going about his business, not knowing how dramatically his life was about to change as he was suddenly introduced to Jesus. It was the spiritual turning point in Simon's life. The same thing is true with all of us. I don't know how you get saved. I don't know who God used to save you. I think about uh, the person at work, maybe, who, you know, all of a sudden now he's or she is talking to you about Jesus, you know. You, you know, you, you run across this person somewhere in the lunchroom or water cooler, whatever, and suddenly they're talking to you about Jesus. And at first it's an incredible imposition. I don't want to talk about Jesus. I got to you know, you nut job, I don't want to talk about Jesus. You know, I just don't have time for this right now. But they were persistent, right? They were persistent. It was started off as an imposition, an aggravation. Pretty soon you began to listen. You became interested. And then enthralled, mesmerized by the life of Jesus. Until finally one day you surrendered your life to him. You didn't realize that that meeting with that person was going to be the turning point in your life. But let me just say this, and it's all about bearing your cross if you want to follow Jesus. No one can bear the cross of Christ without experiencing a radical change in the direction of their life. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Simon's desires and plans that day had to be denied for Jesus Christ. But then again, bearing the cross always means saying no to self and yes to him. Now look, I'm just looking at this from just a practical standpoint. 
It only cost Simon a few hours of his life to carry Jesus' cross that day. Yes, a few hours that changed his life forever, but a few hours to physically carry the cross. What does it cost us? What has it cost you and me to carry our cross or to carry, really, the cross of Christ? What does it cost us? You know, I was doing a little research, and one of the missionaries I came across, Methodist missionary, who served the Lord in the 1800s, his name was James Calvert, and he felt that God was leading him and his family to go to the Fiji Islands. At that time, was populated with cannibals. Okay, very dangerous place. All right, people stayed away from the Fiji Islands at that point. But he felt led to take the message of the gospel to these people. And so the captain of the ship who was dropping him and his family off near the island there, so they could, you know, row ashore and start their ministry. The captain was just—he was like, you know, are you crazy? He, the author says that he said to James Calvert, he said, you know, you will risk your life and all those with you if you go among such savages. To which Calvert magnificently replied, we died before we came here. See, that's a person who has taken up their cross and understands, look, my life is not mine anymore. It belongs to him. Wherever he leads me, I will go. Whatever happens to me, I will accept. But didn't Job say, even if he slays me, I, I still got to trust him? You know, when native missionaries in India go into a new village, when I say village, it could be 10 million people living in that village, so it's a city, right? But when they are about ready to enter into a new city to bring the gospel to a new place in India, they are told to dig their own grave first outside the city. As a way to remind them, they probably, probably will not come out of that city alive but it also helps them to count the cost. You know, for many years, and I don't know how many people are being killed for their faith in China anymore today, but for many years, believers were martyred in China by the hundreds, if not thousands. Of course, the church was underground, and they suffered, though, a lot of martyrs, lost a lot of members because the Chinese government severely persecuted uh, Christians at that time. But the persecuted Christians had a song they would often sing, how glorious it is to die for Jesus. And they meant that, okay? We sing songs that we sing but don't necessarily mean, you know? Take my gold, silver and my gold, not a mite will I withhold. Yeah, right, okay? <laughs> I mean, the church today might sing how glorious it is to die for Jesus, but, you know, we, some guy, you know, work, you know, makes a derogatory comment, we're all up in arms, and oh, you know, and, and God, I didn't sign up for this kind of thing, you know, feeling sorry for ourselves. But these folks, in fact, from what I was able to, read, to learn, that the, in, in the underground church in China, a man couldn't even be a pastor until he was first imprisoned for preaching the gospel publicly. Number two, preached the gospel in prison and started a church there. And then number three, when he was released, he qualified to become an ordained minister. Wow. Of course, we just told you about the new Calvary magazine, and they're free on the side table, but these two little children on the cover, they happen to be the children of Pastor Saeed. Pastor Saeed has spent two years this month in a prison in Iran, serving an eight-year sentence, and he has beaten constantly for his faith his mom and dad are allowed 20 minute visit once a week i think the last visit he was in so much pain he could only talk half the time 
In fact, in prison there in Iran, there are some ISIS members that have been arrested. They've been threatening to kill him. Well, they're in prison too. And yet from what I understand, he is being used by God to touch the prisoners in that prison in Iran. People that would never have heard the gospel unless God had not planted a Christian there in their midst. His wife has been given by God open doors all around the world, yes, to talk about her husband, but also to talk about the fact that God is faithful. Even though our family is going through this, our God is on the throne. We are totally confident in his faithfulness and his love for us. God even opened a door not long ago for her to speak at the UN, where she gave a witness to all these heads of state. When I hear stories like that, I think, and of course, many Christians in northern Iraq, when ISIS came in, fled for their lives. Some of them were killed. But I think to myself, what does it cost me to follow Jesus? I mean, compared to these folks, nothing. Now, listen to me. We live in a country that God has blessed. We have prosperity. We have plenty to eat. We can speak out freely. We have freedom of religion. We can gather in a place like this without fear of uh, the government bursting through the doors and machine gunning us down. I don't know if that's going to change in the near future. I don't know. What I'm saying is we shouldn't be guilty for the blessings God has given us. Let's just not take them for granted either. So this is not about feeling guilty, but I have to say that, Lord, how much do I really love you? How much am I willing to really endure for you? When I look at these people who are willing to endure whatever it takes to glorify your name, I'm humbled and somewhat ashamed. Because I feel like, I don't know if I would be able to deal with the adversity as they deal with it. I hope I would. I know by the grace of God, we can do anything. It would need to be God's grace. So again, the question for you and me is, what does it cost us to follow Jesus? And have we paid that price with joy? You know, Simon was only required to carry Jesus' cross to Golgotha. And then, as I said, he could have thrown it down and went his way. I don't think he did that. We're not actually told what he did once he got there. I personally think that he stayed. I don't think that after having walked with Jesus, whatever it was, a mile or so, to Golgotha, no doubt Jesus engaged them in conversation. I'm sure that they began to talk. I'm sure Simon asked him, why are you being crucified? What have you done? Well, Simon, you have to understand, for this cause I came into the world, to die. You've come here for the Feast of Passover. Do you realize that I'm the Passover lamb, the one who has come down to take away the sin of the world? And I'm sure the Lord laid a witness on this man, I'm, I, so much so that when they got to Calvary, to Golgotha, I don't think Simon left. I think he stayed. I think he wanted to see, not, not for some perverse entertainment value, but he had to stay there and watch Jesus crucified. Just He wanted to stay with him to the end. I know something changed in this man's life. We have good reason to believe that Simon trusted in Jesus as his Savior and went home and led his entire family to the Lord. His life was so transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the cross of Christ that the blessing of the cross spilled over into his entire family. Say, how do you know that? Well, because in Mark's gospel, when Mark is talking about Simon, he talks about Simon of Cyrene, you know, being compelled to carry Jesus' cross. He says, and I'll just paraphrase, you know, Simon, you know, the father of Alexander and Rufus. So the early church knew this family, okay? The early church knew this family. The ones that Mark was writing his gospel to 
were intended to recognize Rufus and Alexander. You know Rufus and Alexander? It's his dad. Oh, that's Simon. Wow. <laughs> Scholars believe that Mark wrote his gospel to those in Rome. To those in Rome. You don't have to turn there now, but as Paul is closing out his letter to the Romans and his closing benediction in chapter 16, we read, he said, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Rufus was such a strong Christian that Paul actually singles him out for special mention, and also his mother. That would be Simon's wife, right? In fact, so dear was Simon's wife to Paul, the mother of Rufus, that he actually says, you know what? She's like my mom, too. Say hi to your mom. See, Simon's encounter with Jesus on the road to Calvary not only saved him, but it saved his wife, his two sons, and Lord knows how many others through his ministry. I mean, what a home they must have had. Today, guys, homes across our country are in big trouble for the most part. Families are in disarray. We see all the divorce. We see the domestic violence. We see families breaking up, drug abuse, alcoholism. Homes are a mess. Listen to me. The only solution is the cross. People getting saved, dying to self, to live for each other to put others, starting with their families, above themselves. See, only the power of the cross can penetrate relationships down to the heart, husbands and wives, parents and children, and bring about a situation where there is authority, stability, and security in the home. Getting back to Simon, though, in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, we read about some of the leaders in the church of Antioch. This would be Antioch in Syria. Whereas Jerusalem, the church there, was the headquarters of the Jewish, Jewish Christians. The church in Antioch of Syria was the headquarters for the Gentile church. That's where Paul and Barnabas attended. They were pastors at large because they were gone a lot. Okay, But that was their home church. And we read how that a group of these elders got together and they prayed and they fasted and decided that God wanted Paul and Barnabas to go out on the first missionary journey into Gentile country to share the gospel with the Gentiles. Now, as you read the list, one of the names on the list is Simeon, who is called Niger. Simeon is another form of Simon. And Niger is a word that means black, and was the regular surname given to those with dark skin who came from northern Africa. Remember, Cyrene now was in northern Africa. Guys, this could be the very, and I think it was, the very Simon that carried the cross of Christ to Golgotha. He not only got saved, but became a leader in the church in Antioch, and, listen, instrumental in sending the first missionary team out into Gentile country with the gospel. And could it be, and just indulge me for a second, okay, could it be that we Gentiles in this very room are in some way the fruit of Simon of Cyrene's ministry? Because the gospel was taken first to Asia Minor, then over into Europe. Who knows how our forefathers were impacted because of a decision Simon helped make 2,000 years ago where the first missionary team was sent out witnessed to the Gentiles, and many got saved. Churches were started. 
Our founding fathers or forefathers came over to this country eventually. Who knows if in this very room we can attribute in part our salvation to what this man did 2,000 years ago. All because one day, to his bitter resentment, he was forced to carry the cross of a condemned Roman prisoner named Jesus. The lesson is this. When you pick up the cross and follow Jesus, not only will it change your life, but it will impact so many others around you. Jesus said that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. A little grain of wheat, if you take it and put it on a plate and leave it there, it'll just stay alone. If you take it, bury it in the ground where it dies, where it germinates, it will bring forth a stock of wheat having much fruit on it. That's our life, as Jesus put it. We can get saved and abide alone. We don't have to die to self. We can just hang out with our Christian friends. In church, a lot of churches have a lot of wonderful amenities, food courts and Starbucks, and I'm not putting that down, but hey, you don't have to, you have to, it's a one-stop shop, basically. You don't have to leave church in some areas. You can spend all your time there socializing, eating, having a cup of coffee, going to the library right there and studying the word. Hey, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Problem is Jesus said, go into all the world. Preach the gospel. But, you know, we've become a subculture. I don't want to go into all the world. The world's scary. I don't like unsafe people. They scare me. I don't like the way they dress. I don't like the way they talk. I want to hang out with you guys. I understand where you're coming from. But you have to die. If you're going to bring forth fruit. Look, and we're done. Jesus is still looking for Simon's quote-unquote today. Those who will take up the cross and follow him all the way to Calvary. And to heed his call is to become a blessing to this generation, your generation, in your home, in your family, in your church, and ultimately in the world. Look, we cannot adequately present a crucified Christ without living a crucified life. That's just the bottom line. And that means absolute surrender to his will and to his purposes. Look, and I want to just direct this to the young people here for just a moment. You guys are the future. You young people here, you're the future, okay? Can I ask you to fight the temptation because it's everywhere? It's in the world, it's in the church. Can I ask you to fight the temptation to approach your Christianity, fight it, with a what's-in-it-for-me mentality? Don't, don't allow yourself to get sucked into Too much of the church today is built around, you know, what God's going to do for me. How's he going to bless me today? How's he going to prosper me? How's he going to do this for me? And the problem is that we hear very little about taking up the cross. We sing about the cross. We wear a cross, but we don't go to the cross. And that's the problem today. It's way too me-centered in America. And may God give us the grace to stop approaching our Christianity in terms of what God's going to do for me and start saying, Lord, I'm your servant. Give me grace to take up my cross, whatever that means, to go wherever you send me, to face whatever I have to. Because all that matters is you, your glory, 
and people's salvation. I don't matter. I matter to you. And whatever I do for you now, I will benefit for for eternity. But Lord, it's not about me. It's about you. And may God give us grace to pick up our cross and follow Jesus, that we might be used by him to impact our world for Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for leading whoever it was into our life that represented you. And so in a way, Lord, through them, we intersected with you on that day. And maybe, Lord, initially was a tremendous imposition to have to take some time to listen to this person talk about Jesus. And yet, Lord, somewhere along the way, you softened our heart, opened our eyes, and we fell in love with you. They may have brought you to us, but we stayed because we loved you. And Lord, we just pray that you would work in our hearts today. There is a lost, dying, and hurting world out there. They don't want to hear about you, necessarily. But give us love to reach out to them anyways. And even if they feel put upon, irritated, Lord, it isn't really, you know, it, it's just the devil in them opposing the light. But give us grace, Lord, to love them, to witness faithfully to them, that, Lord, you would open their eyes, that they would be saved, and they would come to know our Jesus the way, Father, we have come to know him. And may it start with our family, Lord, our loved ones, often so resistant, but, Lord, break down the walls of resistance, open their eyes and save them, that, Lord, the cross the blessing of the cross may spill over into our marriages, our families, our churches, and ultimately the world. We thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.